right, well, we are going to be looking today again at the Gospel of Luke. And I have to tell you, I have really enjoyed uh, this passage. I said to my wife, Megan, last night, even if nobody else uh, enjoys this, I have really enjoyed kind of wrestling through this passage. It's a passage that's pretty familiar. It's the transfiguration. It's Luke's version of this. Um, but I just think it's a fascinating uh, a, a word uh, from the Lord today uh, in Luke. And so let's read that. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. Here's what Luke has to say. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. And they appeared in glory and were speaking about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. Isn't that a great line? Weighed down with sleep. But as they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. And suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was being brought forward, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand the saying. Its meaning remained concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, speak to us through this passage, well known to many of us. May we hear, see, feel your presence. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So again, this is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Gospel of Luke, and quite frankly, one of the strangest, right? I mean, this is just kind of a weird passage in many ways. Here you go. You got Jesus. You got Peter, James, and John. They all go up to the mountain to pray. 
right? And the disciples, right, they almost missed this thing. It's kind of a classic disciple move because they're so weighed down. They're just so sleepy, right? And so finally they wake up and only then do they see, right, that Jesus' face has been transformed as clothes or as bright as lightning. And whoa, there is Moses and Elijah. Peter, right, last week he got it right. This week, of course, he gets it wrong. He says, oh, this is great. Why don't we just, let's all hang out together. I'm going to build us a three tents here real quick or tabernacles, and then we can all just kind of hang out. This is going to be amazing. And all of a sudden, right, this cloud comes in, and there's this great voice, and it's very much like the baptism when Jesus was baptized earlier. And he says, this is my son, right, my chosen. Listen to Then all of a sudden, the cloud is gone, and so are Moses and Elijah. And they're all just sitting there again, and and then they decide, they go down, right? And they go down, and what happens? They go down, and they see, of course, there is this man. They go from this great mountaintop experience, right? All of a sudden, they go down, and there are the disciples, and ah, they're not really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so so they've gone from this kind of mountaintop experience to the brutal realities of this world, right? Most of us know what that's like. Life oftentimes goes from these heights to these incredible lows. Again, it's a pretty well-known story, but I have to tell you, that with the help of some wise folks this week, there were a few things that I had never really considered when it comes to this particular story. One of those, I know why I didn't think about it. It's because I have blinders on. Uh, Maybe you do too. I know I do. We've talked about this some before. It is really hard for us to imagine Jesus as being fully human. We're okay with Jesus being fully God. It makes more sense to us. But Jesus being fully human is just kind of strange in many ways. I want us to remember last week's passage, if you were here, just real briefly. Remember the great question that he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It's this whole question about identity, right? Who do you say that I am? Peter, this time, as we said, he gets it right because he says, you are Christ, right? You are the Messiah. We're all excited for Peter. Uh, And then immediately, remember, Jesus tells him, shh, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. And then he begins to tell them exactly what the Messiah is going to have to endure, what he is going to have to undergo great suffering, we're told, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day then be raised. And as we said last week, this would have been very different framework than what any of them had understood. But immediately then Jesus then goes on to begin to tell them what is going to be necessary for them. That they are going to have to deny themselves. That they're going to have to pick up their cross every day. That they are also, it seems, going to have to suffer. Now that was last week and all of those things are very true. I stand by everything I said last week. But I have to say, I have got to be honest, there was one thing when it came to that passage that I did not think about even once. And that is this reality. I never thought about what it must have been like to have been Jesus and talk about all that you were soon going to endure. 
I never once thought about what this would have been like if you had been Jesus and had to consider the fact that very soon, with great willingness, you were going to suffer. You were going to be whipped. You were going to die on a cross. Instead, almost always, it seems, not just disciples now, but disciples then, as soon as we begin to hear this, we either just kind of reject it or we move on to what does this mean for me? It's a little bit like if you were a coworker and a coworker came up to you and said, oh my goodness, you know, it's clear that they were grieving. I have just been diagnosed. I have a terminal disease. I'm going to be dying in six months. And our response is, oh, that is horrible. How am I going to get all this work done now? Would we do that? No. I hope not. And yet, when it comes to Jesus and thinking about what he was going to endure and suffer, disciples then and disciples now, almost inevitably, we begin to think, what does this mean for us? There are few of us who ever just sit or stand with Jesus. There are few of us who take the emotional time or energy to say, what would this have been like? If Jesus was fully human, how would he have endured all of this? Now, what does this have to do with the transfiguration? Well, I want to suggest today that when you think about Moses and Elijah, did you notice what they were talking about? They were talking about in the NRSV, in the NIV, it says Jesus' departure. In the NRSV, it talks about his exodus, which is really, which is more true to the Greek and it's beautiful language. And we could go on and on about exodus and Moses and how Moses delivered them from the chains of slavery and Jesus is delivering us from the chains of sin and brokenness. You could go, oh, there's a great sermon there. But you know I'm not gonna do a great sermon. So here's the one that I've got. <laughs> which is this sense that they were talking about what he was about to endure in Jerusalem. And I love what Scott Hosey says here. He says, he, he, he says that this one, this Jesus has, it seems, no human encouraging him. And so God the Father sends Moses and Elijah as a way of encouragement to Jesus in the midst of what would have been if he was truly human, if we believe that he was not just fully divine, but fully human, what would have been a time of great trepidation? That Moses and Elijah were the ones, and I love this, they were standing with him. And I take that not just as a physical standing with, but even an emotional and a spiritual standing with. And did you notice how Luke paraphrases, or Luke describes this, I should say, whenever they are gone, it says, Jesus was alone. Have you ever just simply imagined what this would have been like? For Jesus. Now it's very jarring for us to think about the fact that Jesus needed 
others with him to encourage or love him. It is very hard for many of us, myself included, to take the humanity of Jesus seriously. And yet I would vouch to say that if we want our faith to actually mature beyond a child's faith, then we need to begin to understand more and more what it means that Jesus chose to be human, to be vulnerable, what it means that he needed others to support and love him because he was about to suffer in remarkable ways. There is a transformation in one's understanding of somebody else when they begin to see, in this case, when they begin to see that Jesus was fully human. I've shared many times about uh, my parents' divorce. It happened in 1984. That's when they separated. It was at the end of December when my father uh, told me this right after Christmas. And, and I may have mentioned that leading up to this two or three months beforehand, I would notice at times that my mom's eyes were bloodshot. They were red. And I would say, Mom, what's wrong? Are you okay? And she would say, oh, I'm fine. And as a 10-year-old, I would just go off and play. I didn't even think about it. But something I haven't talked about is something that happened early in December. We were uh, living in the Seattle area. We were down in the basement, my whole family. We were watching uh, television. And we got a phone call. And the phone call uh, was to tell my mom about the fact that her father had fallen off a ladder in Kansas and that he had died. And what I remember is the sound and even more the feeling as a 10-year-old boy of my mother's absolute guttural cry. It was this kind of deep, you've perhaps heard it, maybe you've done it, this deep wailing that came from this incredibly deep place. I mean, it was like with reckless abandon. I, of course, thought that it was only because her father had died, but obviously it was also because her husband would soon be departing. But what I remember about that moment as this 10-year-old was that I did not know how to respond. You see, there was a part of me that wanted to go, right, and embrace my mom, embrace her in this wailing, embrace her in this crying and in this grief. But if I am honest as I've considered it, now I also realize that there was a part of me that didn't want to get close to her because all of a sudden I felt remarkably fragile and vulnerable. And the reason I felt like that is because before this moment, mom was mom. You know this as a kid. She was like divine. And this was the very first time that as a kid, I began to see that facade crack and I began to realize that actually she was incredibly human. And I was scared because I had thought this mom, this divine mom was always going to keep me safe. Nothing could bother her. And of course, what I would begin to realize that what took quite some time for me to see this is that the reason why in my then weeks and months and years that came after, the reason why my mother was able to be so present with me in the midst of my pain 
was because she was enduring the exact same thing. You see, I think it is really hard for us to imagine Jesus being fully human. And one of the reasons is because just thinking about him being fully divine just makes us feel all the safer. But I think it actually undersells what Jesus did. I think it undersells the sacrifice and the deep love that he had to have for us to be human and to endure this kind of pain. It's a bit like, you know, when I think about my mom and, and kind of, you know, what she did when she worked, you know, three jobs, delivering newspapers and then, and, and then going and, and studying full time for a graduate degree and, and going to a Christian bookstore and she was doing all these things. You know what? If I just think, well, she's just a hero. It's why I don't actually love hero talk that much. If she's just a hero. That's why she did that. No, she's not a hero. She's not a robot. She's literally human. What makes it remarkable is that the reason she could do all of that was because she was so human and she did it because of this incredible love. You see, Jesus did this willingly, right? He did this as a human and it undersells the amount of love he has for us when we just think, well, he's just a robotic God. That's how he could do that. Of course, the other thing, as we've already said, is this fact that someone points out because of the fact that Jesus did this, then all of a sudden we are also able to understand that Jesus is always with us. When you are alone or you are feeling ostracized, what we know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that Jesus has been there, was willingly there so that he could understand us. When we are undergoing pain, chronic or acute, whatever it might be, what we know is that we do not undergo this alone because Jesus has already undergone this. Whenever it is that we are in the shadow of darkness or death, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or relational, whatever it may be, what we know is that Jesus has already chosen to be there with us and to be there with the pain because he has endured it. To worship a Jesus who is only divine is to miss out on the fullness of who Jesus is. It is to believe in a Pollyanna-like God, a God who might keep us fully safe, but who can never truly know us. You see, the Jesus that is fully God and fully human not only is there in order to help us to feel a sense of security, but is also there so that we can be known by the Almighty. We cannot undersell the humanity of who Jesus is. Now, there's another part of this particular story that I also had not noticed. I'm guessing the reason I didn't notice it is because usually when we talk about the transfiguration, we stop at like verse 36 and we don't go on to the valley part. And we usually just separate that. We talk about the disciples not being able to heal uh, the boys or the man's son. We do that separately. We never really connect the two. But for the very first time, again, I never really thought about this. For the very first time, all of a sudden, I got to ask myself this question. What about the disciples who didn't get to go up on the mountain? Have you ever thought about them? Craig Barnes says, these are the second string disciples. 
I mean, literally, what would that have felt like, right? I mean, your guy, I mean, I'm just remembering like basketball days, right? And you got to go to the hallway and there's the roster and you're reading down and all of a sudden you realize it stops after three and you aren't a part of the first string. You're stuck. You're off the team, it feels like. And sure enough, there they are. Can you just put yourself in their position if you'd gotten left behind? Oh, Peter, James, and John, they're up there. What are we? Chop liver? What? Yeah, it's always... And then in the very midst of that, what happens? This man comes and we're told that he's begging them, can you please heal my son? Now in my idea, people are different. So I'm guessing there's one group of disciples who's like, here's our chance. This is our chance. We're going to heal this guy's son. And you know what happens after that. Well, the next time that Jesus says, hey, I'm going up to the mountain to pray. I want to ask Peter, James, and Jerry. Yes. I made the team. Remember I healed that boy? <laughs> Take that, John. Right? And then I'm guessing that there are people who have a different kind of personality and they're just like, oh, we just, we're horrible. We don't get picked to go up on the mountain and now we've got, now we've got to try to heal this. We can't heal this guy. We can't even go to the mountain. This, we're horrible. And so you have these two different extremes, of course, and none of this is made better by this man. He is shaming the crud out of them. Right, because they're just like, shh, all right, all right, here comes Jesus. And he's running over to them. Jesus, heal my son. I begged them to, but they couldn't do it. Right, what would that have felt like? It would have been brutal. Jesus is unhelpful here. Because he's like, oh, how much longer must I put up with you? You faithless and perverse generation. It's no wonder that at the very end, it says that they were afraid to ask him any other questions or, or, or kind of wrestle with him, right? They were just like, oh, yeah. It's brutal. I got to tell you, I don't like this part of the story. And I know it's Mother's Day. I thought, well, it'd be great if you could just, you know, you could tie this up in a perfect bow and have it make sense and everyone feels good about Jesus here. But I got to tell you, I think he's just being kind of harsh, doesn't feel that loving to me, honestly. But one of the things I've discovered after preaching a lot of sermons where I don't really know how to explain in a way that makes us all just put a smile on our face and go have Mother's Day brunch is to say, well, maybe sometimes we can't explain it, but we can at least try and resonate with it. Because I tell you, I understand. I'm guessing many of you do too. I've been looked at with questions. Can you, you know, uh, about suffering or evil? And I don't know how to answer it. Or, or, or maybe prayer for somebody, someone that they love who then ends up dying. And you get a sense that as soon as they see God, they're going to be like, hey, man, we told this pastor, we told Jerry over there, he could not figure this out. He failed on us. We begged him to give us an answer. We begged for him to try to help our kid, and he wasn't able to do it. Many of you have prayed over somebody, and it didn't work. Others, as one commentator says, hey, you know, it's, the point is that all of us know what it's like to be commanded by Jesus and to fail. Love our neighbor. Okay, we're going to love our neighbor, and then we fail. 
Be gentle, and then we fail. Be patient, and then we, we fail. Quite frankly, I think probably for some of us, we're more than happy to tell on ourselves when we see Jesus, like, hey, I tried to command myself again and again to do this, and I simply could not. And I think that a part of this this morning is just to simply say, we get it, second string. Because there's a whole lot of time when we feel like, if anything, we are on the JV of discipleship. Now, I will say this. Looking at this particular story now, after having children, I at least will give Jesus this which is that I now realize that speaking harshly does not mean that you do not love the ones to whom you are speaking harshly. At times, it means you love them far too much to not speak harshly to them. (laughs) And though it rarely ever feels like love, sometimes weeks or months or years later, you begin to see that even those harshest of words are always draped in an abundance of care and love and grace. Now, I've done my best as we've kind of gone through this uh, Luke to not look at how Matthew or Mark especially kind of retell the same story. I cheated some. I cheated a little bit this week. Because sure enough, I think it was Mark that tells the disciples, the second stringers, you know, the reason why you weren't able to heal them is is because these kind take prayer. Which I got to be honest with you, I got to think, no wonder you're second string. How do you not know that you needed to pray? I mean, you should have done that. But what it also did was it drew me back to the very beginning of this passage. And like I said last week, when I said I'm a broken record, I'll be a broken record again this week. How does this passage begin? Well, sleep, that is true, Dave, for the, second, for the disciples, and that's the first string. Prayer. They go up on the mountain in order to pray. Once again, they begin with prayer. And it is in that prayer when the glory of Jesus is revealed. It is in that prayer where his clothes become as bright as flashes of lightning. It is in that prayer where his face is transformed. And I love what Michael Card says about this. He says that in many ways, what prayer does is it lifts the veil so that we can see things as they truly are. You see, it isn't necessarily here that Jesus was literally changed. But rather, it was as they prayed, as they were in prayer, as Jesus was praying, all of a sudden, as we've already said, they saw Jesus in his full humanity, but they also saw the glory and the beauty of Jesus in his full divinity. You see, as we said last week when it comes to prayer, we sell it short when we just think it's words that we say before a meal or or during worship or when we go to bed. Prayer transforms. It is a posture. 
And the more that we pray, the more we begin to see things as they truly are, including Jesus and including one another. Recently, as you all know, many of you, I went fly fishing. And right before that, about a week or so before that, we had this leadership uh, or not a leadership, the leadership called a Zoom meeting for all of us who were going, right? Most of us were neophytes. Uh, we had never gone fly fishing before. And so they said, you know what? We want to give you a list of things that you should bring. Now, I kind of had the tendency to think that people think that certain things are way too important. Right, and if you're really into something like, oh, you gotta have all these things, I'm like, oh, we'll be fine, you know? I mean, like 100 years ago, people like fish just basically, you know, in, in like shorts and a t-shirt and they just grab fish. That's all you really need. And so, so that was kind of my sense. And especially when it came to this thing, I said, oh, what you gotta need, you, gotta, you need sunglasses and they've gotta be polarized. Oh, polarized, who's got time for that, right? And so I have these, uh, uh, they're gooder sunglasses, you know? I mean, I've had these things for forever. They're just fine, I said to myself. And so we get there and it's the very first day and, and there's my guide and she's looking out and she sees me and I'm like, I got these shades on. She's like, and you know, you can just see, she's just kind of shaking her head. And she's like, here, you're gonna, you're gonna need these polarized sunglasses. I was like, fine. I put them on and all of a sudden I could see everything. It was incredible. I mean, I looked at that river and all of a sudden I could see the big boulders. I could see the small stones. I could see the shallow parts of the river. I could see the deeper parts of the river. I could even from time to time see the fish that were kind of, you know, uh, uh, hiding from me. I could see all of these things because of these Polarized sunglasses. And what's fascinating, of course, is that these weren't virtual reality glasses. It's not like I put something on and it just made up this whole world that hadn't been there before. No, no, no. What polarized sunglasses did, of course, was that they helped to filter out everything else that was getting in the way of my being able to actually see what was there. You see, what prayer does is prayer is like putting on these glasses and the more that you are formed by prayer, the more you begin to see things as they actually are. You know, Eugene Peterson says sin and brokenness, they, they dull our senses. But when we put on this, this kind of glasses of prayer, all of a sudden as the disciples learned up on the mountain, they began to see things as they actually Craig Barnes wrote a book called uh, The Pastor as Minor Poet. He describes how a part of the role of the pastor is to be a poet. It's to try to see under the layers of scripture, but also under the layers of people's lives. And then he went on to say something that really speaks to what we've been talking about when it comes to the gospel of Luke a lot. He says this. He says, Poets... See the despair and heartache as well as the beauty and miracle that lie just beneath the thin veneer of the ordinary. Remember how much we've been talking about the ordinary? And they describe this in ways that are recognized not only in the mind, but more profoundly in the soul. He goes on to say this, what the congregation needs is not a strategist to help them form another plan for achieving a desired image of life, but a poet who looks beneath even the desperation to recover the mystery of what it means to be made in God's image. 
You see, here's, here is what the glasses of the gospel or the glasses of scripture or the glasses of prayer, here's what they do. They allow you to see more and more just as they did at the transfiguration. They allow you to see Jesus. They allow you to see the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. They, are, they, they allow you to see others, but they allow you to see this Jesus. And the clearer that you see this image of God, the more clear we remember that we have been made in the image of God. See, here's how Barnes concludes this. He says this, he says, the human self is never more truly itself than when it is living in Christ, the restorer of the holy image of God in humans. We are most alive when we can see the image of God. And a part of that is that then and only then can we begin to see who God says we are as those who have been made in his image. Why is it that Jesus is so harsh with those disciples? It's because he sees them as they truly are. And he knows that the disciples are not seeing that. They're seeing their sin and their brokenness and chasing after this God. God and that God and Jesus is trying to say how long try on these glasses look at these glasses of the gospel and of prayer look through these lens and you will see who you are because it is only when you begin to see who you are as being made in the image of God it is then that you begin to live into who it is that God created you to be. It is through prayer. It is through scripture. It is through time of meditation. It is through being with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is through all of these things that we begin to see who God, who Jesus truly is. And in so doing, do we begin to see who we are as those who have been created by him for the glory of the one who was fully human and fully divine and the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, we struggle at times with seeing well. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see as you see. As we do, Lord, we believe that we will see you in all of your divinity, but we will also see you in all of your humanity and the way in which it reveals your deep and passionate love to us. And in so doing, Lord, might we then also begin to see ourselves as you see us. Knowing that as our understanding of who we are is transformed, so do we grow more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.